Today on Government Matters, a new Secretary of Defense after a once-in-a-generation waiver happens for the second time. Two former service secretaries on what's ahead for Lloyd Austin. President Joe Biden and his team take over, but the transition isn't finished. Two government veterans explain what's next. And the number one story of the week, a new strategy for fighting the pandemic, using the Defense Production Act to help get vaccines into arms. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A new leader is headed to the Pentagon. Congress granted a waiver this week for the second time in four years so that General Lloyd Austin, U.S. Army retired, could become the Secretary of Defense. Fifteen former defense secretaries and service secretaries endorsed that waiver. Two of them are Deborah Lee James, the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force under President Barack Obama, and Sean O'Keefe, a professor at Syracuse University and former Secretary of the Navy under George H.W. Bush. Uh, secretaries, both of you welcome. Madam Secretary, I start with you. Why were you in favor of this waiver, and what do you think that it means that Congress has granted it for the second time in four years? Well, first of all, I think Lloyd Austin is a terrific pick to be our next Secretary of Defense. He has all of the qualities that you would wish to have in an incumbent for that position. He's got the leadership skills. He has the understanding of our worldwide defensive uh, picture, uh, everything from uh, China to Russia to North Korea, all of the threats, the Middle East that we that we face. Um, he has great experience with heads of state and coalition building. So he's got everything that you would want to see in a secretary of defense. The one issue was the issue of the waiver. And at least as I read the law, as I understand the background on the law, originally in 1947, this was put in place. It was a 10-year rule. They wanted civilian control of the military. Obviously, that is embedded in our Constitution, that principle. It was later reduced to seven years. I don't know what's magic about 10 years, seven years. He's been out for four years. As far as I'm concerned, he is plenty civilian enough. He's got all of the qualities, and I support him uh, tremendously. Secretary O'Keefe, thank you for joining us as well. That magic number of what's civilian enough, how does one determine that, not necessarily for Secretary Austin uh, or for Secretary Mattis or for Secretary Marshall, for that matter, but how does one determine that objectively looking at a candidate, do you think? Well, certainly distance from the time of service in uniform to in understanding fully the scope of the, the national challenges that are at hand uh, is a criteria. And that's certainly the criteria that President Biden made uh, as a determination of his nomination. And I agree with Debbie. This is he's the right guy for the right job in the right circumstances now, given the breadth of his experience, the fact that he has really focused on a range of issues that really are current today. And I mean, again, the, the, the most critical feature is 40% of the uh, uniform military active service today are people of color. So this notion of, uh, you know, a diversity objective is not just a, a, you know, a concept. This is something where the very idea that there is a leader in a position that those who aspire to service, who are people of color, as well as all of us as Americans, can see that as an inspiration going forward. He's got all the, the criteria to, to serve in that capacity. 
And this becomes a deciding feature that I think is critical at this time, at this juncture, given the national debate that we're underway with. Secretary O'Keefe, we talked a little bit before we went on the air about the surprise that all of us found in the speed with which the waiver passed, the confirmation happened, and uh, Secretary Austin likely to be sworn in uh, very, very quickly. What does that say to you about any of the landscape here, any of the elements that we've discussed, the need for a secretary, the need for this secretary, uh, the national security needs of the nation, and so on, that everybody really kind of worked together, something we don't talk about much in Congress, uh, to get this done in a very, very fast way? Absolutely. I think it's, it's quite notable that the, the lead uh, member of the Senate Armed Services Committee was Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska, a Republican who has, a, has great confidence in Lloyd Austin, who believes that he is exactly qualified for the capacity right now, and took it upon himself, I think, to take a leadership capacity with not only members of the Armed Services Committee, but among his colleagues in the United States Senate to really drive home the proposition that uh, Lloyd Austin has the confidence of the President of the United States, which is a critical feature at a time when we're trying to repair relations with alliance partners across the globe, to be able to speak for the president with authority that they will be convinced that he is speaking for the president, and to also have a scope of understanding of what the, the nature of conflict requires that uh, should give you pause before making determination to use the armed forces as an instrument of foreign policy by another means. Uh, Lloyd Austin fully understands that, and he has the characteristics of an individual who can inspire and motivate the armed forces at that time. All those factors are the things that uh, I think Dan Sullivan very effectively uh, prompted his colleagues in the Senate and across the Congress to appreciate, understand, and move promptly to uh, uh, to move on the waiver request going forward. Secretary James, Secretary O'Keefe used the words repair relations. One of the topics you and I have discussed on this program on a number of occasions is people. What do you expect to see Secretary Austin do to repair the relations with the career people inside the Defense Department, particularly in OSD, that have been moved around a lot because of reform that Congress has uh, has passed over the last number of years, but also who haven't, in some cases, had confirmed or appointed bosses for long periods of time over the last several years. Well, this is where Lloyd Austin's leadership skills will really be put to the test. And again, I have absolute confidence that he is going to rise to the, the occasion. Not only does he have the experience in terms of leading large and complex organizations, he's actually got the human touch. He cares about people. He is a quiet professional. He's an excellent listener, something that far too many people have as a quality these days. But he does have it, and it will serve him well. He was asked about this very matter during his hearings on Capitol Hill. How will you work to restore uh, the balance of civilian leadership and military leadership in the Pentagon? And he talked about really um, having a partnership with his senior uh, civilians. And this is where, again, the input is so important. He'll be the final final decision maker, of course, but he pledged to always get that input and to have them as full members of the leadership team have those seats at the table. I think, again, he's going to be fantastic when he meets with both military personnel and civilian personnel around the country and around the world. 
Um, he's going to be someone that people will look up to with, with great admiration. He'll be fair. And I think with all the many things on his plate, we can talk about that, things that are upcoming. It's enormous. But I think he will put people issues, people issues, morale, uh, recruiting, retention. I think these will be at the very top of the heap for Lloyd Austin. Secretary James, Secretary O'Keefe, thank you both very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, up next, President Biden's in, but his team isn't all in just yet. Straight ahead on Government Matters, when does the transition end or does it ever end? You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Every federal agency now has appointees of the new Biden administration at work this week. Five cabinet secretary nominees have had their confirmation hearings for a look at what that means for the transition process. Terry Girton, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration, and Lauren DeYoung Shulman, vice president of research at the Partnership for Public Service, former chief of staff to the assistant SecDef for international security affairs. Ladies, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Lauren, I'll start with you. The, the transition process is starting, right? I shouldn't be thinking about this as something that is complete or even close to complete, should I? Realistically, transition will go on for the rest of the year. I think that a lot of people look at the transition period ending by the first 100 days or so in terms of getting a lot of the appointees in place. But if you look back historically, Obama, President Trump, President George W. Bush, all of them still had gaps in their Senate-confirmed roles, as well as their non-career SES and other pol political appointees by the end of the year. And it's a huge job. At this point, Biden only has about 50 or so appointees who require Senate confirmation named. And only one of them, as of this morning, Avril Haines, has been confirmed by the Senate, though I think realistically by the end of the day, we'll see a couple of more. So there's a long way to go before he's got his leadership team in place. But I know he's working really hard to get a lot of those folks uh, through the process as soon as possible. Terry, what does that mean for the career civil servants that will be welcoming people into their agencies for the next several months and maybe even for the rest of this year as Lauren lays out? Well, I think the wonderful thing about our system is that the work goes on because we have that professional civil service corps. So the work was happening on January 19th and the work is happening on January 21st. Um, but there is so much work to do. So as uh, you're starting to see, this transition team was really focused on having people in place on day one that didn't require confirmation. So they're already up and rolling inside those uh, departments and, and agencies, getting the, the uh, agenda in place, getting people onboarded with the concepts, uh, the career civil services getting used to some of these folks who are gonna be in the deputies and assistant positions. And so that was a really key feature. You could tell that this transition team really knew what they were doing. Terry, is that a strategy? Is that a precedent that we should expect to see in future transitions? One of the arguments that I had never heard this from anybody officially inside the transition, but one of the strategies that that, uh, one of the reasons that apparently was the strategy was because so many of those, those jobs were still open and had been open for substantial periods of time in the Trump administration. Should we expect to see that whoever is elected in 24 and 28 and so on, that a lot more attention will be paid to those non-Senate confirmed jobs? 
I think it's a really practical strategy. You know, we used to think that you wanted to fill at the top and then give that person the option to fill on, uh, the lower positions with their choice of people. But given the length of time that it takes to get folks through Senate confirmation, you really can't wait. Uh, as Lauren said, we're going to expect the transition as it is to go on for the rest of the year. You don't want it to take longer than that. So coming into uh, day one with people in those lower level career positions really gives you a jump start and lets you start working on your agenda right away. I think we will start to see it as a more normal practice in future transitions. And Lauren, you're nodding your head in agreement. It looks like you think that that is the case as well in the NATSEC community, in the defense community, and all across the government? Absolutely. I think that we have seen the Biden transition do something, as Terry said, that really hasn't been done before in accelerating these non-careers, uh, senior executive service and other political appointees to be in their buildings on day one, but also do as thorough a job as possible naming career officials into acting roles. The federal government has a long ways to go in terms of getting its cabinet in place and others, but it's in no way leaderless or rudderless. The work continues, as Terry says, and the Biden administration has clearly prioritize making sure that there are leaders, particularly in the crisis areas that they're facing right now, that will be prepared to implement the new policies and welcome the new appointees as rapidly as possible. Lauren, some of my friends tease me because I always talk about what happens at the end, and the end in this case is the end of this cycle of appointees concluding their time in government. That usually happens in the 18 to 24 month period. So it's encouraging, I suppose, that you're saying that the opening round of transition could be finished by the end of this year. That still gives folks six months to a year to maybe 18 months to be able to really get something done. Francis, you're raising a great point. Political appointees don't generally stay in for the full term. They often are in, by by average, 18 months to two years. It's a really short turnaround to be able to get anything accomplished at that point. But by taking this approach of having a, a slate of leaders who are deliberately chosen for either their experience, their expertise, or their desire to get things done rapidly, I think the Biden administration is setting itself up for success, not only for the political priorities, but for really good collaboration with the career workforce. And we saw uh, President Biden issued, I believe it was yesterday, an incredibly moving message to the career workforce saying, we value you, we know you're doing the hard work, and we look forward to partnering with you. So that recognition, I think, will serve them very well in implementing not only their priorities, but addressing all of their crises that they're having to deal with right now. Terry, as, as Lauren was answering that question, I was thinking in the context of that turnover, the, the volume of turnover, we essentially have been going through a transition pretty much for the last four years. If you look at the number of acting people and the number of unfilled positions, especially in agencies like the Department of Homeland Security, what does that do for the career force that at least, even if it takes till December, that at least there should be some period of time of calm and, and, and a lack of churn? Well, you, again, you make a great point. And Lauren said something that was so important, that these folks that are coming in are experienced in government. So even though they might be in different positions than they've had before, they know how government works. They know how to work together with their career workforce. And that's going to be really powerful. So um, they can build their teams faster. They can get on to activity faster. The uh, tenor of this administration around support and um, encouragement for the federal workforce is already having an impact uh, on the environment. And so I think we're going to start to see some action really quickly. Terry Gurton, Lauren Schulman, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your input on the conversation. Always a pleasure, Francis. 
Up next, the number one story of the week. Straight ahead on Government Matters, President Biden invokes the Defense Production Act. What does it mean for getting vaccines into arms? You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. President Biden says the Defense Production Act will help the country get 100 million coronavirus vaccine doses in his first 100 days in office. He signed an executive order to invoke the DPA for personal protective equipment and supplies to distribute the vaccine this week. Eric Crucius's partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You and I have talked about the DPA on a number of occasions. How does it apply in particular to the vaccine supply chain, Eric? Well, this new um, executive order, which um, President Biden uh, just signed, um, will allow um, the the different agencies to kind of work together and figure out, you know, what supplies are needed for the vaccine. Because, of course, the vaccine serum itself is not the whole thing. It's the entire supply chain that gets the, that gets the vaccine from the manufacturing facility to um, the arm of the person who's receiving it. Um, so the interesting thing about this uh, executive order is it doesn't require the use of the Defense Production Act right now. Uh, right now, the government has authorized the use of the Defense Production Act uh, for HHS and um, FEMA for medical supplies. But the interesting thing about this uh, version is that DOD is potentially also be involved. So what these agencies have to do is they have to look at um, whether these supplies are coming in at a rapid enough pace to get that $100 million um, shots in the first 100 days plus the PPE that's necessary. And if they feel like they, they're not getting there, then it looks like maybe DOD is, is on the precipice of getting kind of that um, DPA, DPA authorization that they haven't had yet. What does someone do or what does someone have to do when the DPA is invoked that it didn't do or didn't have to do before it was invoked? What's the, what's the end result that can happen as a result of this invocation that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't happened? Well, I hope you have about an hour <laughs> to explain it. But um, really specifically from a very high level, um, the manufacturers um, on a, uh, basically have to kind of look at um, their supply chain and say, okay, we have this order from the government that's utilizing the DPA. And because of that, we have to prioritize this government order ahead of all our other orders, even other government orders that are not rated. So that's the first thing that has to happen. There are other aspects of the DPA which are more kind of severe, for lack of a better term, where the government can come in and say, okay, we're going to kind of commandeer this manufacturing facility and you have to make X instead. Of course, the contractors um, that are subject to this have to be compensated for this um, based on market rates. But those are kind of like the two basic things that you could see the DPA being used for in this instance. And the contractors have to kind of flow that all the way down their supply chain. So subcontractors and folks who never do business with the federal government could be subject to these orders. Are there guardrails around this in any way? I recall the DPA being invoked to produce ventilators. Uh, the Trump administration made a big deal about the companies that would be making ventilators. And within several months, we had ventilators sitting around that weren't really being used, uh, reports of that at least. Um, what keeps the companies from making things that wind up not being needed, or is that not their problem? Is it just their problem to do what the government tells them in this case? Francis, it's pretty much the latter. It's you kind of have to do what the government tells you to do. I mean, the good news for the companies is once the government tells you to do it, you're getting compensated for those things that you're being told to do. So, um, you know, the, the 
the contractors do have that advantage. And on top of that, let's say they push back on a commercial order that they've had to do X or to manufacture X because they're doing this DPA order. And that commercial customer has now sued the manufacturer because they haven't produced on time. The government will step in and kind of give you or, or essentially the courts will kind of give you a, a right to use that DPA contract as a defense, as an absolute defense for missing those deadlines. Is there a timeline requirement or can there be a timeline requirement or is it just make these make this stuff as quickly as possible? And is there any limit to what the government can ask for? It doesn't sound like there is. They can ask for anything that they need. Right. So there is a time. The government is required to kind of give you a timeline as far as when it's required to be produced by. If they don't, that's not really a valid DPA order. What happens then is the contractor looks at that deadline and says, we can do this or we can't do it. And if they say they can't do it, then there's a negotiation between the government and the contractor itself. Once the contractor kind of agrees to that deadline, though, they have to meet it or they could be subject um, to cancellation and things like that by the government. Eric Crucius, thanks very much. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you can get a preview of every show by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.